couple of things real quick before we uh, get rolling on Corinthians. If you need a lesson, raise your hand. Um, we've got them being passed out. Also, I'm going to put these in the back. These are little cards. A, a dear, wonderful lady from Florida that Becky and I have gotten to know uh, has found Psalm 91 to be an incredible prayer that she has prayed for innumerable people. She's compiled some interesting information about uh, the way this psalm has helped historically. And she has, on her own expense, printed up a bunch of these cards. Originally, she wanted to send them to all of the military over in Iraq, but hadn't figured out a way to do it. And she said um, that she wants to figure out how to give these away. And so if you've got a way to give these away, here's a box of them. The psalm is a wonderful psalm to pray for someone. It's because I dwell in the secret place of the Most High. I shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. Surely He will deliver me from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He'll cover me with His feathers. Under His wings shall I trust. His truth shall be my shield and buckler. I will not be afraid of terror by day, nor the arrow that flies by night, or terror by night, arrow that flies by day. And it goes on and on and on with... It's, it's just a phenomenal prayer, front and back. So we'll put this box in the back. If you've got a desire for one just to keep in your pocket, in your billfold, uh, there's no secret power in uh, um, having a card that has Psalm 91 on it. But there is no secret that there is power in the God that Psalm 91 talks about. And to have that prayer... There is no secret that there is power in that prayer to that God. And so have that prayer in your pocket or give that to others. Or if you've got a place or you've got some relatives or friends or families that you send things to who are in Iraq or somewhere else, take a bunch of them and send them to them. And let's get that word out and uh, uh, very gracious of her to give it to us. Second uh, uh, housekeeping matter. Uh, a wonderful opportunity has come up in our home uh, for my high school daughters to give a Super Bowl party today. And no, you are not invited unless you're a high school boy. And then, frankly, I don't think I want you around my daughters. <laughs> <coughs> Though they might invite you at that point. Um, but because of that, uh, uh, we have six unused tickets to the Houston Rockets. Uh, the game starts at 2.30. They're up in the uh, uh, suite uh, that our law firm has, and so all the food is already there. Uh, they don't cost you a penny. Uh, uh, you just need to hook up with Philip down here if you're interested in the six seats, and they are yours. They even come with a parking pass. So a chance to go and, and uh, enjoy the game and then get home and enjoy the Super Bowl and just make it one sports event for all you ladies out there. Um, <clears throat> are we on? Okay. There we are. We're going to move the gong show and go to 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> In this class, we've been going through the Bible. And uh, uh, John Adams reminded me we were going to do it in a year. As Lewis was announcing, this is our second year. And we haven't quite made it through, but we're making pretty good progress. We certainly finished the Old Testament. We spent a few weeks in the Apocrypha. Uh, uh, and we are going through the New Testament now, actually through the book of Acts. But we're pausing in Acts to look at the various letters that we can best assume were written at that time period so that we read the writings within context of when they were written. And that brings us now to 1 Corinthians. The first question I would ask then is, when did Paul write 1 Corinthians? Why is it that we put it where we've put it? <clears throat> when we read 1 Corinthians itself, 
We read that Paul wrote it on his missionary journey, his third missionary journey while he was in Ephesus. Now, one of the books that you may have gotten from our class, and if not, I'm assuming we've got some extra back there that you're welcome for, is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And one of the things that that book has been handed out for us for is it's real useful in what it says to do when you come to the epistles, which is a letter, like 1 Corinthians. And if you looked at it or you remember what we've discussed in this class before, it's as follows. We've got a brand new letter that we're going to look at, 1 Corinthians. The first thing I urge us to do when we study it is to learn what we can about the town, the city. Learn what we can about the, the events surrounding the writing of the letter. In other words, put it into context, right? Things in context help. I see John Adams and Mark Barhorst out there, um, doctors. I was upset with Tear Screen this morning when he picked on lawyers until he picked on doctors. Then I decided <clears throat> I'm in good company. Um, um, the uh, uh, context, context, let's put it into context. The reason that triggered in my brain is Tear Screen said, if you ever gone to a lawyer and felt like you needed to hire a lawyer to get him to explain what the lawyer said? Mike Riddle's right behind John. He's a lawyer. He's nodding his head. He heard that too. Um, you've got to get some level of understanding when you read these books. If not, you run the risk of opening up 1 Corinthians and reading it and not understanding why it was originally written, why God saw fit to put it in the Word. It's not in here by accident. It's in here for a reason, but the reason first and foremost involves understanding how it was written at the time. So we need to understand what we can about Corinth. We need to understand what we can about the church there and why Paul wrote this letter. Once we do that, we're in a position to start applying it to us and our circumstances and to do so fairly. So if that's the goal then what I want to do this morning is I want to try and see what do we know about the Corinthian church, what do we know about the city of Corinth, what do we know in general, and then look in a broad overview at the whole letter. After that, over the next couple of weeks, we'll uh, nibble off chapters or, or parts of the letters and ideas within the letters, and we'll digest them a little more fully. Okay? But this is a, a, an overview that, that I think is appropriate to do any time you get to a letter of the Bible and you want to study that letter carefully. First, understand it. Put it into context. So, Paul is writing this when he's on his third missionary journey. We know that. This is a current map of the Mediterranean Sea, the Mediterranean area. And I want us to understand where this is currently. We've got Israel down here just off of Egypt. You've got Egypt. You go a little bit northeast. You've got Israel. Iraq's over here. That's all that mess. Syria is up here. You've got modern-day Turkey, modern-day Greece. You've got all those countries that are brand new to me because back when I was in school, we didn't have them. And then you've got Italy. You've got France. You've got Spain. And this is all Africa. Y'all with me? Okay, what I want to do is I want to take this area right here and I want to blow it up so that, well, not literally. I want to focus on it. <laughs> uh, uh, there may be parts over here we want to blow up sometimes, but, you know, please uh, uh, excuse my slip. Um, uh, I want to take this area right here and I want to magnify it 
so that we look a little bit more closely at it. So we do so. Here's our boot of Italy. Here's Greece. Here's Turkey. This is still Egypt down here. So this is where we are today. Now Paul is writing this to the Corinthian church and Corinth is right down here. Athens would be over here. This is Corinth. And when Paul's writing it, he's over here on the coast of Turkey, a town called Ephesus. And this is where Paul writes from. It's not that far of a shot if you go straight across the sea. If, you, if, you follow your, if your boat follows the coast, it's a little bit more of a boat ride. But it's fairly close to each other in that day and in that culture. We know background information on this also not just from archaeology and not just from ancient writers, but we know some from Luke himself who wrote Acts, what we've already read. We know from Acts 18 and 19 that Paul started the church at Corinth. That's important to know when you read the letter. He's, re he's writing to people he evangelized and brought to the Lord, at least in the main. We know that not only did Paul start the church there, but Aquila and Priscilla came and joined the church. They came from Rome, where they were arguably already Christians. They came to Corinth and joined the church there and worked with Paul while Paul was there for 18 months. This was not a weekend evangelism tent revival that Paul had. Paul was there for a year and a half living and working among the Corinthians, started the church, and taught the church for that year and a half. We also know that Aquila and Priscilla left with Paul and went to Ephesus. Paul left the Corinthian church, it was over here on the screen, no, over here on the screen, and went to Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. Priscilla and Aquila stayed at Ephesus, Paul went down to Jerusalem, back to Antioch, and then Paul came back up to Ephesus. In the meantime, while Paul was gone, Aquila and Priscilla and the church at Ephesus came across this fellow named Apollos from Alexandria who was real learned in the, the, the Word. He didn't have it all figured out right on Jesus and Aquila and Priscilla had to teach him more and better, but he was very eloquent, Luke says. He was very smooth. He was a smooth talker in a positive way. Not, not in an oily way, but in a, in a, a God has empowered this man with eloquence and a gift to orate. And yet not just a gift to orate, wisdom of the scriptures and how they taught about Jesus. So the Ephesian church actually writes a letter saying, Apollos has our support, he is, we are sending him to you. And the Ephesians send Apollos over to the Corinthians to work within that church for a while. And we know this from Acts 18 and 19. Meanwhile, while Apollos is over in Ephesus, Paul returns, I mean over in Corinth, Paul returns to Ephesus. Have I lost you or are you with me? Okay, hopefully you're with me. This is the background we know from Acts 18 and 19. It's going to be important. In addition to that kind of factual data of who, went, where, what, when, how, why, we, we know from reading Acts and we know from reading Corinthians that there's a flow of information going back and forth between Paul and the church at Corinth. Paul may not be there. They may not have phone lines to burn up and they may not have faxes and email. They may, you know, they, they truly have only snail mail because it took a long time. But in the process, we know information's flowing back and forth. We know, for example, that Paul has written a letter, at least one, to the Corinthian church before what we call 1 Corinthians. 
Our letter, 1 Corinthians, is the first one that God saw fit to put into Scripture. But it's not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Paul has written to them already. Uh, Paul says in our letter, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 11, I have already written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. Most scholars believe that this is an indication Paul had already written at least one other letter to the church. In addition to Paul writing to the church, we know that the church has written letters to, at least a letter, to Paul before our 1 Corinthians. So for example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, now for the matters you wrote about. And Paul starts talking there. So, so the Corinthians had written Paul also. So this information flow has Paul writing to the church, the church writing to Paul, and in addition to that, we have people that are traveling back and forth. Because Paul will say, I've heard from some in Chloe's household that there are divisions among you. So someone from Chloe's household or some people from Chloe's household had found Paul in Ephesus and have told Paul what's going on at the church. It's also clear if we read Corinthians carefully that Apollos has finished in Corinth and returned to Ephesus and actually met with Paul and is with Paul and is working with Paul in Ephesus. So Apollos, I'm sure, brought back word of what was going on in Corinth. So Paul has a good understanding of what's happened in this church since he left it. Paul started the church, was there for 18 months, and then the church keeps going while Paul's gone, and Paul's getting information about what's going on at this church, even though Paul is not there. And that is what prompts Paul to write the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Now, why is this information flow important? Why is it important to know this kind of stuff? I'll tell you, unless you read 1 Corinthians all the way through, you don't necessarily pick up on it. But if you read it all the way through, and it's one reason when you first study a letter, it's important, just take the 10 minutes it takes or 15 minutes and read it all the way through. Then start digesting smaller parts of it. If you read it all the way through, you'll get these certain things that you need to know. It's important to understand this because there are passages in 1 Corinthians that you cannot truly understand well unless you know that these letters have been going back and forth and the information has been going back and forth. If you don't have that context to put it in, you will not understand some of the passages that are there. For example, as I told you last week, the, the Greek did not have quotation marks. They had not yet been invented. So Paul doesn't have a way to quote the Corinthian letter that the Corinthian church wrote to him. Because there aren't quotation marks, when Paul quotes their letter, we have to figure it out by context. Okay? So look at two passages. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 7. This is what I put up here in brief just a moment ago. We can do better than this. Maybe. Aha! Paul writes, Now, for the matters you wrote about, 
See that? For the matters you wrote about, right here, the matters you wrote about, colon, it is good for a man not to marry. Now, if you just take the passage, it is good for a man not to marry, you might say that Paul teaches that men should not get married. Unless you read the first part of the sentence and understand that that most likely is what the Corinthians wrote to Paul. See, the Corinthians write to Paul, it is good for a man not to marry. So Paul says, now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Paul says, but, and so this is Paul's comment, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman, her own husband. That is not a comment by Paul that the institution of marriage is a bad institution that should be frowned upon, but is there only because of promiscuity. Paul's not making that comment. Okay? Let me give you another example. Go back up to 6, verse 12. This one's a little less easy to follow, so the NIV helps you on this one. You see under this, uh, um, I'm on the wrong 12, there. 6 verse 12, sexual immorality. See where I've got that? Okay. 6 12, everything is permissible for me, dash, but not everything is beneficial. Do you see what's surrounding that statement, everything is permissible for me? What is it? Quotation marks. Because the scholars believe that Paul's quoting what the Corinthians wrote to Paul. The Corinthians wrote to Paul, Hey, everything's permissible for me. And then Paul's comment is, But not everything is beneficial. And then again, Paul quotes the Corinthians, Everything is permissible for me. But, Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. And then he quotes the Corinthians, Food for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And then Paul says, but God will destroy them both. You see, you understand a bit more of Paul's teachings when you understand that these letters have been going back and forth. And that Paul has, in fact, an opportunity to quote the Corinthians in their letters to him, and he addresses those issues. Does that make sense? Okay. Then, let's start looking, and let's go further now. In our overview of this letter, as we approach it, we want to look at Corinth itself. Let's understand the town. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Corinth was old and new. Corinth was founded four, five, six hundred years before Christ. It was a, a, a thriving town. It was an important town. It was a seaport. I'll tell you more about it later, but for our purposes right now, we need to know that in about 140-something B.C., I don't know the exact date, a Roman emperor destroyed Corinth because Corinth led a rebellion against Rome. Absolutely raised it to the ground. 44 BC, about 100 years later, Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth. He said, we're going to reestablish this town. We're going to make it the Roman capital for this whole Peloponnese Peninsula called Achaia. Achaia. And, and so this whole peninsula, Corinth will be the, 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 the principal sort the seat of Roman government for it. And the town rebuilt, and it rebuilt very quickly. 
Paul's writing 100 years after it's been, or 110 years after it's been reestablished, and already it's the largest city population-wise in Greece. But that's going to tell us that A, it must have a lot of money flowing through it to grow that big that fast. B, it's obviously a center of attention to grow that big and that fast. And C, you don't have old, what we would call blue blood aristocratic rich there. You don't have the families that have been running the, the, the town for the last three or four hundred years. You've got almost nouveau rich, if you will. Okay? It's a navy town times two. What do I mean by that? It's got two ports. It actually had a port on one side of the sea and, and, and a whole port on another sea, on the Ionian Sea on the other side. Let me tell you what I mean. You've got the Aegean Sea right here. You've got the Ionian Sea right here. Corinth has a port. Not my stars messed it up. But Corinth is right there. There's this little four-mile-wide land that links this entire huge area here of several hundred miles, I believe, to this mainland of Greece. It's a little four-mile strip of land that connects it. And uh, what we've done is uh, uh, I've taken this and I want to go to a NASA photograph that uh, I was able to pull off the internet and let's look at this from a NASA photograph of a satellite. So we're going to look at this square right here of, of Corinth, uh, of Greece. This is Greece, this is Athens over here, this is that Aegean Sea, this is the Ionian Sea, and this is that little four-mile speck of land that connects Achaia to all of Greece, this huge island. Uh, well, it's not an island, it's a huge part of the land because it is connected there. It's just a little four-mile strip there, and Corinth is on that four-mile strip. So Corinth has a harbor that connects to the Aegean Sea and goes over here to Turkey. Um, it's also got a harbor that gives it a straight run out here to Italy. Okay? Does that make sense? So it's got two ports. And uh, um, if we go back, one port is a straight shot over here to Turkey. The other one is a straight shot here. Uh, to Italy. And what the Corinthians had done, they wanted to dig like their Panama Canal to connect those, but they weren't able to do that then, though they actually tried to start. So instead what they did is if this is the land that connects the big mass to the big mass, and, and this is Corinth on that, that land, and you've got your harbor here, we'll call that Harbor 1, and you've got Harbor 2 over here. I'm, oh yeah. Okay, you, now you're with me. Thank you, Lewis. Um, you got the big mass of land here, and you got the big mass of land here, and this is Corinth in the middle on this little four-mile stretch. And you've got a harbor that goes to Turkey, and you've got a harbor that goes to Italy. You all with me? So what the Corinthians did is they got a bunch of timbers, a bunch of uh, trees, and they cut all the branches off. And for this four-mile stretch, we'll change colors here, they laid out uh, an old railroad, if you will. They didn't have a train to pull it. They had people and animals. But they laid these logs out for the whole four miles. So a ship could come in to this harbor 
and they would pull the ship up on the logs and pull it the four miles over to the other harbor and it would sail on to Italy. To sail around this, uh, uh, let's go back, to sail around here for a ship to actually do this sailing and come all the way around was an extremely treacherous journey. And so it was a whole lot cheaper and a whole lot easier to go ahead and just get pulled across that little bit of land on the logs. And if the ship was too big to pull, they'd unload the cargo and pull the cargo and put it to another ship there. And do you know what the Corinthians would do with everybody that wanted to do something like that? Say, uh, would that be cash or charge? Because they taxed it all. So they've got bukus of money and bukus of sailors. All right. So Corinth itself, it's a port town and it's rich. It also, with, you know, a sailor's got something in every port. Um, that slogan's probably been around for a long time because there was a great deal of sexual laxity there. In fact, going back 400 years before Christ, the Greeks had taken the word Corinthian, which does not mean anything, I might add, that I know of. I guess it's a kind of column now in architecture. And, and back, uh, who was the guy who talked about the fine Corinthian leather? Uh, you remember with the Cordobas or what, what? Ricardo Montalban? Turns out, fine Corinthian leather. We learned this in law school. There's no such thing as Corinthian leather. Okay? That was a made-up term that Chrysler did just so they could trademark it so it would sound like they had something really special in those cars. Okay. Corinthian doesn't really mean anything, but if you go back 400 years or so before Christ, we read Greek writers who talk about Corinthianizing. And they've taken the, the term Corinthian and turned it into a verb. It meant to fornicate. So if they wanted to write about some fornication, instead of saying they fornicated, they say they Corinthianized. That's what kind of town we're dealing with, okay? It's also home to the Isthmus Games. Okay, we're going back. This whole Isthmus here, which is I think what you'd call it, um, this, this is actually huge. It looks small because we wrote Corinth so big, but this is like big. They had every two years the, the second most important games in all of Greece. The most important were held every four years. They were called the Olympics. The second most important, the Isthmus Games, were held always in Corinth and they were every two years. Okay? So these are things that we know about the town and we need to know these. We know that the town was old and we know that it was also new. We know there was a substantial Jewish population in the town. How do we know it? Well, we can read it in Acts because Paul went to the synagogue. Or we can go check our archaeology. Here is one of the things archaeology has uncovered in Corinth. This is a lintel or the stone that went across a doorway. And this is a stone, if you've got it here, that is a, a gamma. Anybody ever like in a sorority or fraternity with a gamma? You know, it's got that gamma. And the W is an O. Well, here, let's do it this way. I'm going to splurge and tell you if this part's been chipped off. But what this said was, and there's a little chip there, synagogue of the Hebrews engraved over the door. 
and uh, archaeology has found this. Um, we don't have the S-Y-N-A because synagoge is the Greek word for synagogue. It's taken off. And we don't have the E-W or the Hebrew at the end. But we do have the G, we do have the O, we have the next G, and we have the E, synagoge. The E looks like an H. Don't think that that becomes Hebrew, H-E-B, because Greek didn't have an H. They just would breathe roughly over an E. So there's an H there, but the H is part of that E. So you've got H-E-B. You can make out the B. It still looks like our B. You can make out the R a little bit, E-W-S. So archaeology also tells us that there were enough Jews to where they had a dedicated building that had an engraved uh, uh, inscription. Now this stone itself is probably from about 100 years after the time of Paul. But when they put it there or when they built it over the synagogue doesn't change the fact that there was a substantial Jewish population there to deal with it. There are also some columns that have been unearthed there. And uh, here's one of the columns, and that's a menorah that's been engraved, the Jewish candlestick at the top of the column. So archaeology teaches us that as well. Now, in the rest of this class, what I want to ask is, why does it matter? What makes it worth in biblical research and scholarly review and our Bible study? Why does it matter that we go back and look at these things? I urge you to do it. I urge you to get a good set of Bible encyclopedias. Zondervan puts out a four-volume set that's fantastic. Makes a wonderful a Valentine's Day gift for the one you love. <laughs> Becky? <laughs> hint, hint. Um, no, I've, I've already got it. Um, but <laughs> don't go buying it, please. Um, but why would you bother to do this? Why do I say before you read the letter for, for this, you need to understand these things? Let's just look at what we've covered today, all right? First of all, let's look at what we've covered within the Bible itself about Apollos and knowing what happened in Acts and trying to read it all in one sense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I'm writing you because there are divisions there in the church. I got some serious problems with what's going on in your church. He says, my brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which is Peter. Peter obviously had made a trip there from, uh, um, from Jerusalem, uh, keeping all the churches tied in with the Jerusalem church. So, but they don't use Peter, they use Cephas, his Greek name, because he was at a Greek church. Um, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And then there were the really holy ones who would just look at everybody and say, I follow Christ. And Paul says, you know, this is a problem. This is an important enough problem. I'm putting this in chapter 1. This is a problem. This is a problem. And Paul explains the roles. Paul says, don't think that just because I came and I started the church and I taught basic things to you, and then Apollos came and Apollos taught you more in greater detail, that this means Apollos is better than I am. And don't think that this means that Apollos is more spiritual or those who follow Apollos are more spiritual. Don't start dividing up into little cliques and little clubs of, well, I'm just following Paul. He was our starter. Yeah, well, I'm following Apollos because I think he knew more. See, Paul just came on his own. Apollos had letters of commendation from the Ephesians. 
Paul had to work while he was among us. It looks like Apollos came and people were backing him financially. You know, Peter comes. He's getting backed financially. Paul can't even raise a living for what he's doing. Paul just shows up and has to work because he can't get enough people to support him in his message. So I'm going to follow Apollos. Paul says, no, please understand, I planted the seed. Apollos may be the water that helped it grow. But God's behind all of this and we all work together. Because the goal is not to be divisive parts. The goal is to be a united whole. And in fact, I love what this says about Apollos. Because if you think about it, Apollos is a young upstart, if you will. And Paul is a patriarch. Paul has incredible training. Paul is the one who started the missionary trips. Apollos goes back to Ephesus and is no doubt there when the word comes from some people in Chloe's household that, hey, Paul, after you left, you know, Apollos came, and Apollos has got this whole little cult following there of these people who say that he's a lot wiser and more spiritual, and they follow him instead of you. Can you imagine being Apollos and sitting there when, when you've been over, you've been doing the teaching, and you're with Paul, and the message comes back, and, hey, Chloe's household, hey, how you doing? Great, great, great. Well, tell us what's going on in the church. And you're sitting there next to Paul when he says, well, um, actually, there's some problems, you see, because a lot of people are saying they, they're following Apollos instead of Paul. And there's a real division, and they're quarreling about who was more important and who had the more wise message and the more spiritual message and who was teaching just basics versus who was teaching really deep things. If I were Apollos, I'd be cringing. And I'd be wanting to say to Paul, um, I really wasn't out there trying to get my cult following. I really wasn't out there trying to engender support for my ministry. But somehow in the midst of all of this, Apollos and Paul both understood that it wasn't about them, it was about God. Because Paul says in the, later on in the Corinthian letter, he says, I want Apollos to come back to you. This is after Paul straightens it out. And Apollos doesn't even want to come. But I'm urging him to come. And he will come because I'm urging him to come. See how that makes more sense when you understand the context of what had happened? So when Paul writes now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but will go when he has the opportunity. So Paul urges him to go. All right, what other difference does it make? The riches. When we understand that this was a, a community that esteemed money, a community that was rich, a community that was wealthy, a community that had a lot of wealth, a community that had a lot of size, and then Paul comes in, and Paul's a tent maker, and he's having to work. Works during the morning, preaches in the afternoon. He doesn't have anybody supporting him. He doesn't have a house. He doesn't have a car. Okay, well, none of them had a car. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he's a vagabond. He's a hobo. He doesn't wear nice clothes. And can't you see some of the nouveau rich kind of, yeah, well, you know, if Paul was really in God's graces, God would have blessed him more. Paul's a self-supporting missionary. He can't even get a church to fund his trip. 
Apollos had Ephesus fund them. Peter had Jerusalem to fund them. But Paul is a weak, unsupported, milky baby teacher simpleton. That's what they were saying about him, some of them. He, it, you know, Tears Green talked about his newborn baby. That baby's three months old or whatever. I guarantee you it's drinking milk or formula. And that's the kind of stuff Paul would teach. He's simpleton. You know, all he talked about was, oh, Jesus Christ died for you. He never taught about the greater things, the deep wisdom things. We've moved on. We've been Christians now for two years. Okay? So consider these passages when you understand that type of background and see if they don't jump out a little bit more from the page for you. I've got a number of them down here. Paul says, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom. I may not have been the most eloquent thing you ever saw, but not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The reason it's so powerful is it's not my words that were conveying the power, it's the message. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. Where is the wise man? You want to be so, you know, I'm just some foolish simpleton with a foolish message, a simple message, a milk toast message? Well, where is the wise man? God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. Don't you know he put foolishness in quotation marks? Because that's what they were thinking. He's just, that's simpleton. Through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom because I resolved, I made up my mind that I would know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness. I may not have been the most athletic guy ready for the games. I may not have had the clothes that you want me to wear. But we are fools for Christ, and you think you're so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You're honored, and we're dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We go homeless. We work hard with our own hands. I mean, he is stinging them with this. Do you see he has gone? He is, he's not being gentle here. He's very blunt. The irony of the way he is speaking to them is a strong, strong, strong needle pointing to their hurt or their problems. It says, you, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You've become kings without us, without me even there. You think you have hit the highlight and the marquee. He says, well, let me tell you something. And in chapter 9, he says, the reason I didn't take any money from anybody isn't because I wasn't do it. I was do it. But I didn't take it because I didn't want you to say I was there teaching for the money. I didn't take your money because I didn't want you saying, well, of course, he's just saying what he, he, he needs to say to motivate us to put money in the plate because he doesn't want a real job. He says... Everybody who is a minister of the gospel has a right, a right to take the money and make a living from that. 
That is the way it should be done. The fact that I didn't do it is because I was bending over backwards to teach you the gospel message and I didn't want anything to take away from it. The reason I'm not rich and wealthy is not because I have no ability to be rich and wealthy. The reason I'm not rich and wealthy is because I'm spending my time instead and my energies instead trying to teach Jesus Christ crucified to those who are perishing. You want to take issue with that? Take issue. And that's what's behind his letter here. Sexual laxity. There's some sexual problems in the church. And Paul makes it real clear. That's a problem for the people involved in the sexual sin. But Paul jumps on the church as well. Because he says you're condoning it and turning your head to it. And that's as atrocious as everything else. They're in a community where sexual laxity was just part of the culture. So we'll excuse it in the church. Boys will be boys. And Paul jumps all over him on that. The Isthmus games, when you understand that this was uh, the, the center for those games, what do you have? You understand a little more fully. Paul writing in chapter 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everybody who goes into the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. See, those types of statements have more significance when you read them when you understand a little bit about the town, right? Bottom line, if we look at all of this today and we get ready to go out from here, Paul is writing to a self-centered, proud, sinful church. They've got so many problems it ought to be real encouraging to us. One of the neatest things is with all of these problems, Paul doesn't write them off. He writes them. With all of these problems, he still sees them as, their, as his Christian brothers. With all of the arrogance, with all of the people that have been slandering, and Paul uses that word. He says, I've been slandered by you. With all of that that's gone on, Paul still writes them with love and kindness. Because what Paul understood and what, what the Spirit had grown in Paul over the decades is that self-centeredness, pride and arrogance and self-importance and self-worth and sin have an answer. The answer is Jesus Christ crucified, period. The love and the service that go with it. 1 Corinthians is where chapter 13 he goes into the great detail about love as the greatest thing. But even that chapter is because the Corinthians were fighting over who had the best spiritual gifts. I can speak in tongues. Oh yeah, I can heal. Oh yeah, I can prophesy. Oh yeah, I can interpret. Well, I have some gifts. Well, I have different ones that are better. And Paul's whole response is, time out. What you have, you have to serve each other. And the greatest gift you can ever have is to love. And that's the one we all need because that's the only one that lasts. You won't need healing in heaven, but you will be loving in heaven. And so this whole letter, Paul's saying all of these problems of sin, all of these problems of pride, all of these problems with self-centeredness and self-importance and egocentric narcissistic behavior have an answer that Jesus Christ died for you. And I don't need to know anything else but that. It's like Tear Screen said this morning. The grace of Christ... The death of Christ for your sins, the grace of God, the gift that God gave you, the forgiveness of that cross 
That is the answer to everything. Because that's what restores the relationship with God. And when you've got that relationship with God restored, then the rest of your life is right. It's not get your life right to become a Christian. I have five children. They are not my children because they obey me. They are my children and they obey because they're my children. And that's the way it is with God. We don't obey to become His children. We are His children and that's why we obey. And Paul is dealing with that here. And he says the key is to understand the relationship between you and God. And that's Jesus crucified. So here are your points for home. Here are our points for home. Center your life on Jesus Christ crucified. I've got three minutes. I'm going to spend a little bit more time with these points for home today. I want you to figure out where your life compass is. Where is that center of gravity? What is it that gives you drive each day? What is it that dictates when you lose your temper and when you don't? What is it that dictates what you value and what you don't? What is it that dictates when you take a deep breath or when you just react? What is it that dictates how you treat your family? Let it be Jesus Christ died for you and you were unworthy and God loved you that much. You center that in your life and that's going to be the way you treat people. When you don't treat people that way, you're not centered there. And as tragic as the consequences are of how you're treating other people, the greatest tragedy is what's happening to you and to me when we're not centered in who Jesus is and what he did for us. Next point. More money does not make a better person. More money does not make a person any better. It doesn't even come close. I can remember growing up. We didn't grow up in a wealthy home. Um, we, we had what we needed, but we were far from wealthy. Unless you count love and things like that. I'm talking monetary wealth. And I can remember growing up, seeing people even in church, seeing people in church, seeing people at school, seeing people who had a lot of money, and being in awe, in a sense, as if they were, there was, you know, that's, you know, I can remember when one person with a lot of money said hi to me, and I was shocked, wow, that person knew me. Okay? That's mind games. That's games from Satan. That's got nothing to do with anything. If someone has more money, that just means that God's expecting them to do stuff with that money. That's all that means. And if they're not doing it, pity them. The goal in life is not to get a bunch of money. The goal is to do what God wants with whatever you have. Okay. More money doesn't make anybody any better than anybody else. And if you've got money, don't ever look your nose down on someone who doesn't. You worry about you and what you're doing with what God's put in your stead. And if you don't have money, don't hold in awe people who do. You work with what you have, and you use it for God, and you pray that other people do too, because there are a bunch of different people walking a bunch of different roads, and that's all it is. That's all it is. Say goodbye to your pride. Don't start thinking that you're more than you are. One of my favorite songs that I want sung at my funeral Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. There's nothing 
There's nothing any of us are in and of ourselves that's worthy of boasting. Nothing. And we need to not think that because we may have a high and mighty position, we may eat dinners with senators and, and statesmen, we may have, uh, 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 you know, seats at the best sporting events. We may have uh, uh, any number of things. There's nothing in all of that that makes us worthy of pride or boasting. You want to boast? You boast in Jesus Christ and what he did for us. That's the only thing worth being boasting about. And let's love each other. Make a decision right now. I'm going to show the love of Jesus. Think of somebody right now, and this is our last point and we'll split, but Think of somebody right now that you can show the love of Jesus to when you leave here. Maybe the person sitting next to you, maybe when you get home with one of your kids, but in the next hour, how can you show someone, if nothing else, just tell them, I love you. Just say it. Make a decision right now. Think of somebody and make a decision. Today I'm going to say that to them. I'm going to show them. Pray with me, please. God, thank you so much for the wonders in your word. Lord, every time we open it, we see something new uh, uh, or at least something communicates to us differently than it has before. You work wonders in our hearts. We're honored to be your children. We love and adore you. Continue to grow us up in the image of your son, please. Thank you for the blessing that this class is to me and my family. And I pray it's a blessing to everyone. In Jesus Christ, amen.